Dear listener, dear listener, dear listener, you have to go right now. Please, I want you to go to the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store because there's so much there waiting for you. So much. T-shirts, hats. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And then you've got hoodies and pens and mugs. Oh my goodness me, it just never ends. I mean, you can get lost in there. You really can. So much more. Drinkware. Socks. That's right, socks. I mean, if you want to get fitted and kitted, this is the place to be. The Politocrat Daily Podcast online store. Shop there right now at the-politocrat.myshopify.com That's the-politocrat.myshopify.com Thank you for your support. Welcome to the Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Sunday, May the 9th, 2021. On this edition of the Politocrat, the ongoing pandemic. What have you learned from this pandemic that continues around the world? How has it changed you? And what things do you find to be a perhaps permanent part of the way you live? I'll be talking about that and I'll also be doing a little bit of analysis forensically on a particular very interesting thing I saw on Sky News this morning. All of that coming up next. Welcome back. So here we are on Sunday, May the 9th, and here in the United States, it is Mother's Day. So I want to wish every mother a happy Mother's Day. It is a really, really great thing to bring life into this world and, of course, beyond that, to cultivate life, to be a key teacher in life. And mothers certainly are that indispensable and I think mothers should get a whole lot more credit and respect than I think they already do so I want to say so much of thanks to my mother and I want to say thank you mother for all the great things you've done I mean and continue to do I mean I could never repay you Never, ever repay my mother. Um, just can't. Nobody can repair, repay their mothers um, for all the great things they've done. You know, if you are fortunate enough to have a mother who has been such a, a great teacher and such a, um, a great 
shaper of life and someone who taught you those lessons and teaches you those lessons even today. Um, you have to give full credit. I mean, even if perhaps your mother was not or has not been the best mother for you, you still have to give that person credit. So happy Mother's Day to my mom and happy Mother's Day to every mother on the planet, including here in the United States. I hope your Sunday is going well and... There are a couple of things I just want to talk about in this episode. One of them is about the pandemic and how you've behaved during this pandemic, which continues on. Because, I mean, I have to say that because in some quarters here in the United States and maybe in the UK too, there is an impression that this is all over now. The impression, at least that I, dear listener, get from some of the media that I've seen online is that, oh, it's over. You know, you can come out now. Come on out, come out, come out wherever you are and just throw your mask away and, you know, walk down the street. Don't worry about physically distancing. Head back inside to your local restaurant. I mean, those are the impressions that some of this coverage is certainly leaving me with talk in the UK of Boris Johnson, well, we're going to do some more uh, event trialing and, and things like that on May 17th. We're going to do this, that, and the other. And then on June the 21st, we're going to open up shop. We're going to open up everything. No more masks, no more physical distancing. Voila. We're done. And I say, hell no, we're not done. Not even close. If you listened to an episode from a week or two ago, I was particularly harsh on the Centers for Disease Control here in the United States for their really wayward and irresponsible, in my view at least, advice for mask wearers in the United States who have been fully vaccinated to not wear those masks if they don't have large crowds around them or if they don't have I, I, I did listen. That, that's, that is such a really irresponsible message because as I said a week or two ago when I did this episode about the CDC's irresponsible messaging, this particular thing that was said a week or two ago by the CDC, you, can only, you should only wear your mask if you're fully vaccinated if you're among large groups of people and you can't physically distance. And my thing is, no, no, no. Most people are going to hear, if you're fully vaccinated, you don't have to wear your mask. That is how the human mind and the human brain work. And subconsciously, after 15 months of going through wearing a mask, those of you who have worn a mask for at least 15 months, there will be some, um, some amongst us who will psychologically and subconsciously want to get rid of these masks. Those of us who are fully vaccinated, who may subconsciously want to say, oh, I'm fully vaccinated, so I can take this off now. And I would invoke these words. Yeah, I use John Boehner, <laughs> the former 
Speaker of the House, the Republican. And he said those words when he was the Speaker of the House years ago regarding Obamacare. And this was on the floor debate. He was absolutely furious. But I echo his message here for a different reason. There's no way, and I say, hell no, you can't take off your mask at this point. If you're fully vaccinated, if you're any vaccinated, if you're zero vaccinated, you cannot be taking off your mask now. Why do I say that? Three reasons. One, there are still many people who are carrying around this virus, many of whom don't know it. Number one. Number two, if you are fully vaccinated, you may still have this virus as an asymptomatic and you can pass that virus around to others, namely the more vulnerable populations. And number three, which was really couples and dovetails of number two, and I should have said this as the number two. Number three is that having the vaccination does not mean that you are someone who can't transmit this virus. It means that if you were to come down with COVID-19, you wouldn't be horrendously sick from it and you wouldn't die. That's what this vaccination is. It doesn't mean that you cannot still get COVID-19. And if you are now petrified by what I just said, you're going to be petrified a little bit more in about 3.3 seconds. Jordan Lee, a member of the NBA basketball team, the Golden State Warriors, based here now in San Francisco, which is where they were originally based before going to Oakland and coming back to San Francisco. Jordan Lee an NBA basketball player for the Golden State Warriors, was fully vaccinated and he came down with COVID-19 after being fully vaccinated. I kid you not, I am not joking. Which is why I say to everybody listening, please keep wearing your mask. Please, please keep wearing your mask. And, 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 please get fully vaccinated. I should add, with the case of Jordan Lee, that because there is a small instance of people getting the virus even after full vaccination. It is not very many people. It is rare, but it underscores what I have been saying now for months. On and off during this pandemic and these episodes of this podcast. And that is that Having this vaccination does not necessarily mean that you cannot get this virus. This vaccination is not a cure for COVID-19. And this is where education is absolutely critical. 
Nobody is saying this often enough. Nobody is saying this often enough. And let me just change the name of the, or correct the name, I should say, of the Golden State Warriors player who ended up with this virus. I mean, this is the this is why, I, again, folks, I have said before that this is not a cure. And I have said before that you should still get vaccinated. And I have said before that not enough proper education is being done. If there had been pamphlets sent to a lot of the people all over the country, I'd say, This would have been a different story. I honestly think so. I think that we really would have had a very different situation in this country. Um, But again, no pamphlets were sent out to a majority of people in the country by mail. There's never been in the United States. I don't know. In England, I think there have been in other countries. There have been mailers about this, but not in the U.S., And I think that that should have been done. You know, we get so many blooming pieces of mail when it comes to election time. Those of you in the United States know this well. You get all kinds of garbage and junk mail from candidates, local, state and federal. Oh, my God, they're all in your mailbox. Oh, my goodness. Over the last two years, not just last November, my God, how many freaking pieces of mail did you get from Democratic and Republican candidates in your mailbox. How many pieces of mail did you get? Mike Bloomberg threw a piece of mail in your inbox every other second, it seemed. His ads were all over the place. I mean, you couldn't get away from your, your mail. I'm not talking about your email box. I'm talking about your post box. I'm talking about your mailbox in your house, in your apartment building. You couldn't get away from these mailers. But... A pamphlet, a three or four page pamphlet telling you and educating you about the virus, the COVID-19 virus and the pandemic and about getting vaccinated. Oh, no, we can't possibly mail you that. Oh, we can't do that. Oh, no, we can't spend a little bit of money to mail out a pamphlet to everyone. It's online. Go look it up. Why don't you put the mailers for all these candidates that we get mailers from in our mailboxes, stuff in our mailboxes of all this paper and cardboard. You want to be environmentally friendly? Put that on the internet and mail it to us there via email. And then for all of us, because there's a great many people in the US who do not have computer access, do not have internet access, do not have any high speed, forget that, and don't have computers or anything at all like that. There's at least 100 million people in this country who do not have an access to any computer, let alone no internet access. Mail those things out in the post to every household. That's what should have been done with this pandemic at the beginning of it. Or even, you know, cumulative mailers, updates from the CDC in our mailboxes, in the post. So we go down to our mailbox, wherever that is, outside our house, inside an apartment building, wherever, 
and every few weeks we get a new mailer, a three or four page pamphlet directly sent to our homes. So we can see, okay, here's the new update. Of course, the, the, the criminal administration would never do that, but they should have done that. They should have done that. And I think the CDC should have been able to do that. They weren't allowed to because Donald Trump, that criminal piece of garbage who really should be behind bars and in The Hague for human rights violations and all manner of criminality, wasn't going to do that. But I think the CDC now should do that. And I think they need to educate people. The name of the player, and I got his name wrong, so I correct my apologies and I correct myself here. Damian Lee is the Golden State Warriors basketball player who tested positive for COVID-19 despite being fully vaccinated. Please, dear listener, I do need you to listen particularly to this. May the 6th, 2021. This is an article from The Athletic at theathletic.com. Headline, Warriors Damian Lee tested positive for COVID-19 despite full vaccination. Is by The Athletic staff. Golden State Warriors forward Damian Lee said he tested positive for COVID-19 two weeks ago despite receiving the COVID-19 vaccination in March. Quote, essentially, this was just a rare breakthrough case, Lee said prior to the Warriors' Thursday night game against the Oklahoma City Thunder. After doing the research, there's been about 6,000 people who have tested positive with a breakthrough case out of the over 80 million people who have been fully vaccinated. Lee went on to describe the symptoms he experienced including headache, chills, sneezing, congestion, soreness, body aches, and what he described as, quote, brain fog, where he'd lost track of what he was talking about five minutes into a conversation. It felt like I was hit by a car, hit by two cars at once, he added. Then the article goes on to talk about, and by the way, I've had brain fog a load of times, but I've remembered, I've been able to, for the most part, remember what I was saying. So I'm now looking at myself going, do I have to get tested for COVID-19? I mean, I've been tested for COVID-19 and tested for it as recently, literally uh, as last month and negative. But I'm telling you folks, this is why you've, got to get fully vaccinated and why you've got to keep wearing a mask. Because yes, maybe I've scared some people off here because this is a rare case. 6,000 people out of 80 million people who have been fully vaccinated. Now that is, that I'm assuming is 80 million people in the world because it's not 80 million people in the United States. We have not reached that level yet where Roughly 35% of the people are fully vaccinated. As far as I know, 33%. I think we're more around 25 or so, but I could be wrong. But this article seems to intimate, um, well, I'm assuming that the 80 million people that Lee, Damien Lee, is talking about is 80 million people around the world. 
who have been fully vaccinated. Although I could be wrong about that. Could be the U.S., but I don't think it is. So the article goes on to talk about he hasn't played a game since April 19th, which would be, what, roughly, what, three weeks ago now? Um, Something like that, roughly three weeks ago. And the final part of this story says, quote, Right now, there's no timeline in the immediate future for me coming back and playing. Lee said, quote, still have protocols and hurdles for me to clear from the medical side. After that, it's a matter of getting back into basketball shape. And um, that's the story. I mean, that should really give you pause. Not give you pause saying, well, no, I'm definitely not getting the vaccination now. No, 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 no. That should give you pause about the fact that being fully vaccinated does not mean that you should just rip off your mask. And because I'm telling you, you can still pass on this virus to people and they can die. I've got a really perverse question to ask. Do you really feel like being a killer? Joan Jett and the Blackhearts with I Love Blo- Oh, gosh. <laughs> I Love Rock and Roll. <laughs> I almost said something else. <laughs> oh, my goodness me. <laughs> Those people... Those people in the world who say that I speak too slowly. Oh, come on. You have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, I completely did. Anyway, that is a listen. I've got to say this. Joan Jett and the Black Hearts. That's a great song from Joan Jett and, and the Black. I mean, come on. Joan Jett and the Black Hearts yeah, back in the day, um, in part of the back in the day. Uh, part three or four, <laughs> um, really excellent. Um, that was a smash hit back in the nineteen eighties, not the seventies. It was a little bit later than that. Was it some of the eighty four, eighty five ish, eighty three, eighty somewhere, <laughs> eighty whatever? <laughs> Joan Jett and the Black Hearts with "I Love Rock and Roll." And I just want to ask you about how you've been faring. And I know I've asked this question before. Um, or variations of it during this pandemic that we are all still going through. Because as I said earlier, the notion that we are being given, certainly something that I've noted, is that this pandemic is done with, is that this pandemic is over, is that you can just fling off your mask, you know. Seriously, it's akin to, not quite the same, it's akin to telling a woman to take off her bra now, you know, it's, you don't have to wear one of those. And of course, women are free to choose to wear a bra or not. That's none of my business. Certainly as a man's none of my business. That's a woman's choice. It goes about even saying, and I don't want to sound like I'm being patronizing. And I'm sorry if that's how I come across here. Uh, I am simply saying that, you know, in, in my failed attempt to draw some kind of analogy that this is the kind of messaging that we are being given now. Certainly in the United States, 
in the United Kingdom that is happening. Um, in France, oh my goodness me, it is such a cluster you-know-what in France. It, see, you know, Nick, uh, let me just talk about that for a quick second, really instant second here. Emmanuel Macron, the leader of France, the French president, or prime minister, which, I mean, gosh, president, president, president. The prime minister, I forgot the prime minister's name, but the president is Emmanuel Macron. And Macron is, he, he got caught with his pants down a few months ago, where he said, no, you shouldn't be taking this vaccine. I think it was AstraZeneca, whichever vaccine it was. Then he had to do an about face. <laughs> then say, oh, you can take it now. And like, France has been so vaccine hesitant. You want to talk about hesitancy, and I hate that word. And I know it's stereotypical to say the French do things their way. It's so stereotypical. I'm simply saying that there are a number of people in France who are saying, I'm not taking no stinking vaccine. And nothing that you say, Mr. Macron, is going to do a damn bit of difference. That is, I mean, the, the French have absolutely, you know, it seems that half the population is taking the vaccine and half ain't. I mean, maybe that's an oversimplification. But I'm telling you, based on what I have been reading, and unless I'm reading complete garbage, and this always possible, isn't it? This is the case. France is absolutely mooning the rest of the world in many respects, as it is wont to do. And so I, I just want to ask you, based on the fact that now you've got people in the UK, certainly in England saying, and in the UK in general saying, well, you know, you've got Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the UK, telling you, well, you know, in May on May 17th, which is just eight days from today, dear listener, we're going to be doing these events and we're going to be trialling this and that and the other. And then, if it all goes well, on June 21st, we're going to tell everybody, mask off. You don't have to worry. Mask off. That's including people who may not have been vaccinated. He made no distinction. He didn't say fully vaccinated, but he didn't go the way of the CDC, who said, well, only if there's large crowds do you wear a mask if you're fully vaccinated. He didn't go anywhere near that. He just blew through that stop sign, through that equivocation, right? He blew through that. And then he said, he, and, and blew through that and said, oh, you know, mask off. He didn't say fully vaccinated mask off. He said mask off for everybody. You can be, you can be out there not having had this vaccine and on June 21st of this year, which is only, what, six weeks from now, roughly, five and a half weeks from now, you can absolutely, according to Boris Johnson, if all goes well on the 17th of May, you can, on June 21st, fling off your mask and do not physically distance at all. You can go into pubs, into restaurants, you can go indoors and have fun. No mask, no physical distancing. You can have a right old knees up. Like nothing happened these last 16, 15 months. Like nothing happened. Like, no, the UK didn't lose 128,000 people to COVID-19. They didn't die from it. You know, next minute, you know, you're going to have all these jackasses telling you that this pandemic never happened. Can't you just see that? I mean, you know they'll do that here in the US. 
I mean, they've been calling it a hoax ever since it began. Even when it was killing some of their friends and family, they were still calling it hoaxes, some of these idiots. Some people on Twitter call them COVID-idiots. I, I think it's a lot worse than that. And I think my term for them, idiots, is not strong enough. But you are free to be stupid and ignorant in the United States. And freedom is not free because it can cost you your life. Because if you want to be that stupid and that ignorant, you can be prepared to end your life because you don't want to wear a mask and you don't want to get vaccinated. And this has happened all across this country where people have been decrying the virus as a hoax and they've died from it. They followed their dear leader, the, uh, the criminal and illegal one, from that administration that was absolutely criminal as well. And they followed that guy off a cliff. Or he, he didn't jump off the cliff. He said, go on, it's okay. And the rest of these idiots jumped off the cliff while he watched and said, you've been good. Hope you enjoy your landing. I don't take any responsibility at all. That's what he said. He said that almost exactly a year ago now. I think we're four days away from it. I think it was Friday, May the 13th of 2020 when Donald Trump said that. In the Rose Garden. It's either June or, or May of June of, of last year. I'll find out. I think it was May of 2020. So all of that as a backdrop. I want to ask, pose this question. How have you fared? And again, I've asked this question before, I think. I know I have. How have you fared during this pandemic? The pandemic is still with us. It ain't going anywhere, not for at least a little while. And while the incidences of virus in the United States and the United Kingdom have gone down, we are seeing in the very countries that have been ravaged by British colonialism or American invasion, that the rates of COVID-19 infection and death have skyrocketed. We know about India. India has been severely harmed. And that's putting it mildly by this COVID-19 virus and oxygen shortages. We're having in India something like nearly half a million people a day coming down with COVID-19. And so many hundreds of thousands of people having it. And so, and so many thousands of those people dying daily. After the U.S., and who could beat the U.S. in anything, right? We're number one. We're number one. The American exceptionalism of what? 600,000 plus deaths from COVID-19. We have the highest rate of the virus anywhere in the world. India is number two now. And it's getting worse. And the oxygen crisis there is worse. And the vaccinations and how they're still desperately short of vaccinations is really getting worse. And meanwhile, here in the United States and in the United Kingdom, the stockpiling and the surplus of the vaccine continues. As I said in numerous episodes in the past, these countries have more vaccine now than they know what to do with. People are being absolutely close. People are closing down clinics for vaccination in the United States, in various parts of the country, including not far from here. If you go north of San Francisco to Marin County, they have begun to close 
or will be closing a number of vaccination facilities. People are not showing up. There's more appointments than people even know what to do with. People are not taking the appointments. Part of that is that people have been fully vaccinated. Part of that is that people aren't coming back for the second shot, which they should be. Please come back for your second shot of vaccination. Please, please. Part of this also is back to the very poor messaging of the CDC most recently. The CDC under Joe Biden has generally been very good, but I thought this particular message from a few short weeks ago was not good at all about, again, as I said earlier, having been fully vaccinated, you don't need to wear your mask unless you're in large crowds and cannot physically distance. I mean, come on, come on, come on. As I said earlier, and I've said this before in other episodes, you know that people, most people are going to hear you don't have to wear a mask and they're not going to hear anything that follows that sentence in that sentence. They're going to only hear the things that they really want to hear to give them the excuse to fling off that mask. And once you as a CDC do that and you don't give out messaging that says keep your mask on, even if you're fully vaccinated, if you deviate from that, you give people room to create distinctions in gray areas. And that's the problem. And that's what's going to make things a lot harder in this country, because I think and I don't mean to be the Grim Reaper. But when Memorial Day comes in just under three weeks from now, you're going to see a spiking or soon start to see a spiking of the rates of coronavirus in the United States like we did last year. When there was this rush to open things up, remember that? And then when we got to the middle of June and the end of June, the rates skyrocketed. And I think you're going to see a similar thing this time around. People think, really, I think, and many, great many people in the United States, I believe, I haven't polled them, it's just my opinion, observation, which may not necessarily be the most informed opinion when I'm talking about what I'm about to say. And that is, it's my belief that there is a significant cross-section of the United States. I don't know how big that is. I'd say maybe 35%, maybe 40, who think, oh, I'm fully vaccinated now, I can take this mask off. And I am saying that when the CDC says something like, well, you know, if you're fully vaccinated, you only need to wear your mask when there's large crowds. You've just absolutely given these people license to fling their mask off. And I just think that's such a wrong thing to do. Of course, I've talked about this before, but I just want to say that again because it's really important to wear a mask no matter what. Even if you choose not to be vaccinated, you're going to have to wear this mask, please. Please, you're saving people's lives. I asked crudely a few minutes back to end a segment, well, do you want to be a killer? Because that's what you would be if you choose not to wear a mask. Why would you want to be that? Is that something that you've always fantasized about doing? I don't know. And when I say you, I don't mean you specifically. I mean generally, the, the general you. To the persons or person who has this kind of twisted, sick mentality that says, I don't give a rats. I'm going to just fling off a mask. And I'm going to, and I see so many of these people around here in San Francisco, in this part of San Francisco, they just don't care. Walking with, the freak, with no mask on at all, none. 
And you just look at these. These are grown adults. And you just look at these people. Grown adult again. Almost, they're white. I mean, almost all. I've only seen ever one or two black people. In this part of town. With no mask on. And I'm serious. Seriously. Everybody else. Everyone else wears a mask. I've seen every brown person, almost every brown, maybe one or two, but almost every one of them. I've seen pretty much every Asian person wear a mask. I've seen pretty much every, you name the group. But again, as I keep saying, you know, no, oh, you know, there's 50% of the white people I see. No mask, no mask, no mask. And then there's lots of white people who do wear a mask as well. But again, there's absence of responsibility that these particular individuals are not taking. They're choosing not to be. And society tells them, you don't need to be responsible if you're white. You can just do whatever the hell you want and blame it on someone else. That is the, the, one of the most basest and most dangerous things. You don't have to be responsible. That's what the society's telling them. No, you don't have to be responsible. Yeah, you don't have to. No, we're going to just open everything up. You don't have to wear your mask. And people are doing this. You see it all over here. And I'm telling you, it is absolutely bizarre and dangerous and selfish. And then they start to look at you like you're the weird one with two masks on. Oh, you're weird. You've got a mask on. Oh, no, you've got two on. And I wonder, have these people been vaccinated or not? And I'm telling you, even if they've been fully vaccinated, as I said a million times in this episode, you've got to still wear that mask until you are seeing better messaging from the CDC that tells you there is no need at all to wear a mask now because the incidence of virus has got to such a point now in the United States or anywhere else in the world but in, for the sake of the U.S. and the CDC, it's the, you know, here in the U.S., to the, such a point where you don't even have to wear one now, then until then, I'm wearing a mask, period. I don't, I don't, listen, I may go from wearing two to wearing one. I may keep wearing two. I've been wearing two masks for now at least six months. I've been wearing some kind of face covering ever since the end of February of 2020. And I've not taken any chances with this. I'm telling you, this, I, I've been wearing gloves since then. I am not playing. I've been wearing gloves now for 15, almost 16 months. Definitely at least 15 months now. Gloves every day. Gloves, 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 gloves. I've been wearing gloves for 16 months. No, I don't want a cookie. don't want a medal. I'm just saying. That is what I've been doing. And I know others have too. And I know people say, well, you can't get it from touching doorknobs and things. But you can get all kinds of crap from doorknobs and people who don't wash their hands when they go to a bathroom. So they go home, don't wear, wash their hands, right? Leave their home, put all their germs on their, on their already bacteria-assed door handles and doorknobs, right? Then take that outside and they try to shake your hand. And I know people aren't really in the business of handshaking now, but the point is all that crap and that bacteria is on their hands. And I know there's a million bacteria. I get it. It engulfs us in our homes and out our, I get that, but that's not the point I'm making. 
It's that people are not hygienic. Some people, a lot of people are. And let me tell you something else. There was an article in the New York Times last week about people not taking showers, but maybe once a week now. F that. You know, F that. I'm sorry. And maybe you're one of them, dear listener. Maybe you've decided, F it. I'm, you know, not taking any more showers or I'm not taking them every day. Heck, I'm not going out. I'm not at work. I am, you know, working from home or maybe you're not working from home. Maybe you've been one of the unfortunate people who's been laid off from your job as a result of this pandemic. So you're like, to hell with it. I don't need to be clean anymore. I don't need to do that. And my whole thing is to people in general, not necessarily to the people who've just lost their jobs. I'm saying to everybody, why would you want to stop being clean? Does it have to be a a mandate that you've got to go out somewhere in order to shower? (laughs) Again, call me a snob, whatever you choose. But does it have to be a mandate that in order for you to get clean, to shower or have a bath, that you have to be going out somewhere in order to do that? You don't think that independently... Being clean is a good thing unless you have to go outside your house. So by that line of thinking, your house must be a real stink job. It must be a mess. It must probably be not clean at all because the interior of your house doesn't get exposed to the outside world. So based on that analogy, as tricky and as dangerous as that analogy might be, your house probably ain't clean at all. And I get it. Maybe you've not had a Latino or Latina come to your door as a maid, quote unquote, to clean your house for you because you're oh so busy in this pandemic. You haven't had that. But. You mean to say that your house is absolutely stinking and you don't clean it and you don't keep? I mean, come on, really? By that logic, I've got to assume that about a person who doesn't do that. Now, look, I know I've stepped on some people's nerves with these comments, perhaps, but I really do want to understand that mentality. I really can't. And the New York Times in this article, oh, I mean, people were gleeful about it. Oh, you know. I don't want to do it. I don't have to shower. I don't care. Oh, my God. Oh, it's an environmental thing. They use the environment well, the water. I don't have to, you know, come on now. Don't use other things as a crutch for your dirtiness, please. This is the article title in the New York Times. The title, See Fewer People Take Fewer Showers. Subtitle, some people said, They started bathing less during the pandemic. As long as no one complains, they say they plan to keep the new habit. This is by Maria Kramer. And I've quoted her before in New York Times articles. Her last name is spelt with a C-R-A-M-E-R. Kramer. May the 6th, 2021. That would have been on Thursday. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just got all these people profiled. Oh, I don't shower. Oh, I don't do this. And one of them said... Quoting one of them, the kids will tell you if you don't smell good. 
Three, four, and five-year-old children will tell you the truth. Well, there are some adults that will tell you the truth too. You stink. Clean your ass. <laughs> I'm telling you. And I don't even know you. I haven't even seen you. But I don't want to smell you. Especially if you haven't taken a shower. I mean, I'm not going to be going around, dear listener, doing the sniff test. <laughs> I'm not going to be doing that like some kind of dog. I mean, your dog will probably go, Oh my God. It might start talking. Your dog might start talking to you because you stink. And it might actually verbalize. That sounds more like a wolf than a dog, but you get it. I know I'm stepping on toes here. I know I am. Because I know that there are people who don't shower. But, really? I mean, listen, every one of us has gone a day, right, in our lives where we've not showered. I'm not going to sit here and say that I've never done that, where there hasn't been one day in my entire life where I didn't shower. Come on now. That would be absolutely ridiculous and dishonest. And I'd be lying to you. And every single one of the people listening to me right now has gone at least one day in their lives without showering. So I'm not sitting here like some prude and holier than thou expressing to you that I've never failed to take a shower. Because everyone has taken a day off from showering. But... The difference is here, this ain't about taking a day off or you don't feel like it on this day. This is about, nope, I'm going to go a shower a week. To hell with it. I'm not going to shower anymore. No, once a week, maybe once a month, maybe once every quarter. (laughs) Maybe when I go out again, (laughs) maybe when this pandemic's over, maybe when it's um, Christmas time, special occasions I'll shower, you know, then... Maybe when it's a special anniversary. Maybe when it's a... with home and home is where the heart is they say you know I, I think of the film um, Shadow Shadowlands no Shadowlands was Deborah Winger and Anthony Hopkins <laughs> I'm thinking of the film Nomadland which just won the Oscar for best picture last month uh, and also for best director and best actress among other awards it got I think there was at least three Oscars History made, of course, uh, the first Asian female to win Best Director. I was really happy for Chloe Zhao and well-deserved. And the reason I bring up um, Nomadland, and you heard that song there from Philip Phillips, which uh, I just love that song. It gives me goosebumps when I hear that. I don't know why, but it does. I can't explain why. <laughs> sometimes you can't explain things in life, right? You can't explain sometimes the feelings that you have or get from something or some other you, you, you can't, man. Why would you want to always analyze that in great detail? <laughs> Sometimes you just have to 
things just happen, right? That when your feelings come, they come. And that's that. Sometimes you don't have to go into this. I don't know. I don't know if that's a male thing where there's always this need to interrogate every thought or feeling that we as people have. I don't know. Is that a male thing? Is that a masculine? Is that a masculine thing? A male thing? What is that? And I'm not even necessarily assailing it as negative, but you could ascribe that to it. Perhaps maybe I am ascribing negativity to it. I don't know. But there is such an interrogational aspect to some of us as men, those of us who are male. There's always this question. And yet we don't ask questions when we're lost. (laughs) When we're driving, right? We won't, some of us won't ask questions. When we're lost, some of us will not... (laughs) Say, excuse me, can you tell me where this place is? You just keep driving. I got it. Don't worry, I got it. <laughs> Don't worry, I know where I'm going. We'll find it. I'll find it. And like, hey, just stop and ask somebody. Go over here and park the car and go over that. No, uh, no, no, we're almost there. This is just, <laughs> I know I'm staring. That's a, such a stereotype, but it's true. It's true. It's true. At least for some of us, it's very true. But anyway, we'll interrogate like hell. If we have an argument with our spouse or, or our partner and, and, and we're saying to her, well, why are you doing that? Why do you feel that? Why do you? But, but yet we won't, we won't ask a question or interrogate where the hell we are when we're obviously lost in the middle of a big ass nowhere. We won't ask any question. We'll just keep driving and driving and driving into a ditch before we asked. (laughs) Oh, dear, dear. And GPS don't cut it either because GPS is BS. And I know some people will disagree with that, but so what? You can, no one says that you have to agree with anything I say at all. It's like I don't have to agree with anything you say or think about things. And I don't mean that to be arrogant or cavalier. I'm just saying that GPS sucks. And if you're relying on some machine to get you around, what if that machine malfunctions? Then your ass is up Shit's Creek without toilet paper. And you don't want to go there and you don't want to be there. Even those of you who don't take showers don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to be there. Do you? <laughs> oh gosh, I'm having way too much fun about people not taking showers. And it's not a laughing matter. I can't help myself. It's as if I'm, you know, I can't help it. I cannot help myself. <laughs> oh, dearie me. But anyway, I'm now way off the topic here. Nomad Land is about people who are trying to find where their home is, trying to make sense of where their home is, or adjusting to their home, and searching for more, searching for where their community really is and who their community is in a place that has long discarded them, the United States of America, corporate America, Amazon. And Amazon is a character lurking in the background of this film. It gets mentioned once or twice. And that's all. It doesn't have to be made the villain, but it's clear that it's a villain. Even if Chloe Zhao and the original writer of the book that the film is based on you know, don't say so. 
and I haven't read the book, and I forgot the name of the writer who wrote the book Nomadland, um, but she doesn't, I, I haven't read her book, so I couldn't tell you. Uh, have you read her book? If you have, let me know, politicrappod at gmail.com. And I really would like to know, because I, I'm not, I mean, I'm reading two other books at the minute, in addition to everything else that I'm up to, but I've not read Nomadland as a book. I've seen the film, and the film's excellent. If you have not seen Nomadland, please see it. I believe it's on Hulu. It's on your cable system in the United States. It's streaming on Hulu, I think, and maybe on other platforms as well. I don't know. Uh, may even be on YouTube, but you have to pay whatever you have to pay on YouTube for streaming these these uh, things. I'm not sure if it is on YouTube, but anyway, it's out, it's available, it's on DVD and Blu-ray, I think, or it will be shortly, if it isn't already. Please go see that movie, go watch that film. Um, it would have been so good to see that movie in a theatre, because I think it would have been even more affecting than it was. It's a film that you feel. It really is a film you feel. Speaking of feelings, as I spoke about earlier, Nomadland, M-O- let me say that again, N-O-M-A-D-L-A-N-D. Nomadland is a film you feel. I'm not going to give anything away. I've told you about the fact that people are searching for themselves, searching for the community. There is a community that is that is spoken about and who speaks in this film. And it feels like a documentary too, but this film is a feeling. The whole thing is, and that's, that's not to minimize, that's actually to praise it. Um... And the reason I played Philip, Philip, Philip Phillips's home is because I think that kind of provides a contrast to what we see in Nomadland. I think home is a more optimistic, as a song, as a more, more optimistic vision of, um, of the way things are. Where people may be on the edge of losing their homes in this pandemic, or may have lost their homes, may have been foreclosed on, you know, all these serious, serious things. There's still food lines in the United States. As some people rush to go back to restaurants and outdoor eating and soon indoor eating. If you listen to the governor of the state of California, Gavin Newsom, who faces this obnoxious and absurd Republican-inspired or Republican-drummed-up recall this November. It's just ridiculous. What a waste of taxpayer money. This is from a, a party that claims to be so fiscally conservative. Oh, we don't want to spend so much money. But they're complaining at the same time about stimulus checks going out to people. Oh, we can't have that. That's not for COVID. That's for all this other stuff. Like food, like clothing, like, oh my God. This is not COVID related. But we can waste money on a freaking recall in the country's most populous state. And waste billions, really billions of dollars on a friggin' recall that is not going to do anything because it's going to end up with Gavin Newsom winning. Trust me. This ain't 2003, as I said before. This is not Gray Davis. This is not Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is not the Gropenator. This is none of that. And it's a, what a waste of money. Oh, but, oh my God, that stimulus check you got for COVID. Oh my goodness me. That's way too much money. $1,400. Oh, goodness me. How dare you? That's too much money for the average person and their families. But Philip Phillips' song, as goosebump-inducing as it is for me, is happy-clappy in a way. It's 
hopeful, which is good, but it's also kind of out of step with some of the realities. There's even a sense of paternalism in the song too, you know. I know you're not alone. I'm going to make this place your home. Like maybe he's talking to his child. Maybe he's talking to his girlfriend, his wife, or, you know, I don't know, his husband. I don't know. I don't know. I, honestly, I've not listened very closely to all the lyrics of the song. But I offer it as this contrast to what many people are going through. I can walk down the street here in this part of San Francisco and see five homeless people. Or I should say five people who are without homes. Because when you say homeless person, you are automatically stigmatizing them, aren't you, in a way? Homeless person. There's a homeless person over there. What about there's a person who does not have a home to go to? If you frame it like that, then you are forced, hopefully, if you are empathetic enough, to think about, okay, why are they without a home? At least that's the calculus that my brain would go through. I don't know if it's this calculus that yours would go through or someone else's. Maybe, maybe not. And I offer that not as, oh, I'm so much more sensitive than everybody. I offer that as, that's how I'm thinking about this. If you reframe the language and you say, there is a person over there who is without a home, inevitably, I think, you are then forced to ask yourself as a follow-up question or as a question, why are they without a home? If you have any level of empathy and any level of compassion, hopefully those are the gears that your brain is working in. And then you're forced to ask, hopefully, who would have been responsible for them not having a home? And then you'd have to ask, okay, why is it in a city like San Francisco that really does have some of the billionaires in it and all down Silicon Valley, which is 45 miles south of here, why would in a place where there are all these billionaires, would you have people homeless, people without homes? And then you start to get to the questions and the critical thinking that land you in policies that are shaped to continue to preserve this state of people without homes. Then you've got this other analysis that goes on that says, hey, look, for goodness sake, man, you've got people who are coming from other places on the planet who are buying up real estate in San Francisco and not even living in it. It's empty. Spending millions of dollars to buy investors from all over the world. Buying. And leaving these properties blank, empty, zilch, nobody living in them. And then in the same vicinity, you've got three or four people sleeping on the street. That's morally indefensible. And then that's where you start to force yourself to think about the policies that bring about the reason why that person over there that you just walked past is there in the first place on the sidewalk with a sign saying, please help, I'm hungry. But instead, some of us look down on them and, oh my God, there's so many homeless around here. I know people who say stuff like this and they're never challenged to actually say, why are people without a home? They instead invest lots of ne negative energy, 
looking down on them. Never mind the fact they won't even give them any money to begin with. They snarl at them, walk past them, pretend they're not there. Oh, they smell. Oh, they smell, they say. Oh, the homeless, the person without the home smells, but you won't take your shower more than once a week. <laughs> it's like, uh, um, and you have a home. <laughs> and you won't take a shower. They don't have a choice, right? The people without homes, they don't really have a choice, right? They don't really have a choice whether they can take a shower or not. For the most part, most overwhelmingly don't, right? But you do. You live in a home, you have a home, and you're looking down on them who don't have a home, and you won't shower but once a week. <laughs> Come on, people. It's not that difficult. This isn't even fuzzy math or maths, whatever. It's just not difficult to see where the contradiction and the hypocrisy is. And to do that level of thinking that allows you and allows me to really look more broadly at what it is that's going on around us. And so while a, a song like Home from Philip Phillips is a really uplifting one in some ways, and I'm not jumping on Philip Phillips. I'm just saying it kind of offers this, when you contrast it with the realities of a film like A Nomad Land, and some people have complained about Nomad Land for not going after Amazon and for all kinds of other things, right? And when you contrast it with the realities of what you see, dear listener, if you are anywhere in the world and you walk down your street or walk down a street in your city, in your country and see people on the streets begging, they don't have homes, they don't have places to go, you know, you have to start asking why are they without a home? And it's not because these people are bad or evil people. There are life circumstances and situations that have presented themselves. And then there is a system that turns its back on people in those particular situations. And then that leads to all these people on food banks, who some of whom have homes, some of whom don't. There's no excuse as the richest country in the world why the United States should not have every single person who is inside the United States with a roof over their heads. And I'm talking about a roof that's not a homeless shelter roof. I'm talking about a roof where they get to live, they get to live comfortably. There's no reason why. And you've got Jeff Bezos running around here with trillions of dollars. That's not the kind of system I want anymore. I don't think that system works for us. That system of capitalism that is completely poisonous does not work for anybody but the billionaires and people aspiring. Oh, let me see if I can become really rich and famous. And most people never will. Sorry, but that's the, that's the truth. We won't, most of us, right? And then there's all these rules you have to live up to once you do get into that area. At least most of us have to live up to. So these are harsh realities. And instead of trying to shoehorn our way into a system of keeping up with the Joneses, that's what the media and the culture around us says we've got to be. We ain't shit unless we are like the Joneses, unless we get this done, unless we get that done, unless we have this surgery or that. You ain't shit. 
And I say no to that. I completely reject that. In a culture that values, ooh, you know, it's kind of like what Billy Crystal used to say on Saturday Night Live and in one of his famous characters. is, You look marvelous. Oh, you look marvelous. Better to look good than to feel good. And that's the culture. It's totally our culture. It's better to look good than to feel good. So you can have all these adjustments done to you and you don't feel any better about who you are. Well, maybe you do. But then there's going to be something else you want to adjust. And then you're not able to do that, perhaps. And that gets you down. But that's the culture that's telling you. You've got to always do this and that to yourself, but not change your mindset about the world that you're living in, in terms of why is it that people have to do these things? And number two, why is it that all these people on the street don't have homes in a country that's supposedly number one? We're number one. Just some things for you to think about before I get to the final part of this episode. say a good day to you. I want to thank you for listening and I will thank you again, of course, um, before the episode is done. But I want to thank you for listening. It really means a lot to me that you do and your loyalty is greatly appreciated. And very soon I will be giving away a couple of books. Well, one book and one film. The film I'm sure you know by now is the documentary I Am Not Your Negro. It's available, by the way, on Netflix. It is available on YouTube. But it is available to you from me. I'm only giving away one. I've already given away this film on a number of pre- previous occasions um, during this podcast. And I'm doing so once again as an appreciation of thanks to you as dear loyal listeners. And also we'll be giving away a book, the autobiography of Angela Davis. It's simply titled An Autobiography. And you got to read that book. Angela Davis, a living legend, um, teacher, professor, activist, political prisoner, American hero, heroine. I mean, and one of the great intellectuals we have too. I mean, Angela Davis, and she's with us. And she's teaching at the University of Santa Cruz here in California. And you, you, this, is a, this is an autobiography that's illuminating. She's also written many other books, including Women, Race and Class, which is another book I urge you to read. I'm going to continue to talk about books because books are important. And I'm not talking audiobooks. I know some people, maybe some of you listening, love audiobooks. And plus, it's a way for you to do many different things if you can't have the time and you may not have the time to physically sit down and focus on reading actual books books and turning the pages, which I love. God, I'm so old fashioned. I love it, but I love it. I'm, that's not a bad thing to be old fashioned. Even to call it old fashioned perhaps is a misnomer because it's always in style. <laughs> Reading a book, an actual book and turning the pages 
is always in style. It's never old. It's continuous. And this audiobook stuff, I'm sorry, I can't get with it. This reading books on iPads, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't get with it. And I've read books on iPads. And, and I stopped reading. In fact, I've read half of one on an iPad and I couldn't finish. I, I just couldn't. So anyway, the bottom line here is to tell you I'm giving away a book. I'm giving away, um, as thanks for your loyal listenership, a book called An Autobiography. Angela Davis, An Autobiography. And I'm giving that away soon. And I will let you know, let you know, I'll let you know in the, in the not-too-distant future. Um, and it will be done through the newsletter. Um, and maybe on the podcast episode, too. <laughs> but I do want to say two things. One, again, if I hadn't asked you more clearly, what kinds of things have you learned about yourself during this pandemic? What kinds of things? What kinds of things have you had to do um, to, to make changes in your life and in your routines? And, and it's not for you to even tell me, but just to answer for yourself. How have, you all, how have you dealt with this? How have you coped? Have you coped at all? Has it just been pure hell? I mean, ha, I mean, people have lost people in this pandemic. I know people who, you know, I know people who are still struggling with COVID-19, even right now, a year after they came down with it. I know people who have friends who have died from this pandemic, from this virus. And maybe you do too. Maybe there's someone in your family who passed away from the virus or who had the virus or who has it. Or maybe you've had this virus and you've been really sick or ill from it. Or maybe you haven't been, but you've had this virus. My whole point is just asking you on this episode is how have you felt? How have you dealt with all of this? Whether you've had the virus or not, how has it all affected your life? This whole episode, these last 15 to 16 months. I know that there are obviously communities who have been affected in really frightening ways. The Asian community in the United States has been absolutely affected. We've seen the ramifications of it and it continues. And we've got to stand up against hatred and violence against Asians. We have got to. We've got to be proactive about that. We've got to be more vocal about it. We've got to be more visual about it. You really do. It's very important. I know I, uh, you will see in the near future a new T-shirt that I am unveiling. I know that sounds crude on the back of what I've just said, but I'm unveiling a T-shirt that you can purchase. You'll be, in fact, you can purchase it right now on the Politocrat uh, Daily Podcast online store at the-politocrat.myshopify.com. Um, that is a T-shirt that, that is called the Stop Asian Hate T-shirt. And it's literally in Chinese characters on the front of the shirt. It says the words, stop Asian hate. And, uh, and on the back, there's also Chinese characters spelling out a no hate zone, a hate free zone. Uh, you, you've got to get this T-shirt. Wear the T-shirt. Send a message. I know people put these things in their windows and they put these messages about Black Lives Matter in their shop windows. And I've seen it all over San Francisco, uh, certainly in this part of the neck of the woods too. And I've been um, on my travels around here, um, my, you know, very abbreviated travels because I'm not really traveling, obviously, during a pandemic. And I hope you're not either. Um, 
And I've seen that in windows, but I've not seen a lot of people wear the actual T-shirts. And that's where persons like moi come in. And I design T-shirts of all kinds and among the other many things I do. And one of them is to, you know, make it clear. Stop Asian hate. Black Lives Matter. Put all of these things out there visually. I mean, people wear corporations all the time. They've got no problem wearing universities of people who've actually enslaved you. You know, Stanford. Leland Stanford was a blooming enslaver of black folk and a racist, stone cold. Leland Stanford. Stanford University, I see it all the time. People walking around with Stanford shirts and hoodies on. Really? Do you know what Stanford even stands for or stood for? Come on now. I know it's a school that has top-notch people or some people in it who are top-notch. Some of them are not. But who was it founded on? What did he believe in? And then you'll scowl at someone wearing a Harriet Tubman t-shirt, would you? (laughs) It's amazing because you don't know your history or you don't care to know it. So you're scowling at a heroine or a hero and you're thumbing up a enslavement owner person who owns who owned black people as property or or who was viciously racist and that's the thing in this country when you're not caring about history when you're not taught your history when you're taught that black history is limited to one month or when you're taught that it's only black history and not all of our history in the united states that harriet tubman oh she's black history no it's american history as well mate But again, that's what happens. Would you cut off your history and your own personal life to only one month in a year? I think not. So you certainly shouldn't be doing that with us. Our history is continuous. It ain't just one week. It ain't just one month. And it definitely ain't just one year. So we're not having that. I'm not having that. Black history is every freaking day. American history is every freaking day. Right? And your history ain't confined in your personal life to one friggin' month. So ours ain't either. Don't expect that. I don't want to hear it. And then to the shortest month of the year? (laughs) Come on now. Oh, dearie me. Anyway, anyway. I just had to say that. So again, how have you fared in this pandemic? How are you feeling? Um, What's it been like for you? If, If you care to drop me a line politocratpod at gmail.com or of course on Twitter at the popcorn R-E-E-L and also on Facebook and you know Facebook but um, yeah how have you how have you dealt with it I mean for me I've just I told you in 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 a word how I've dealt with it wearing a mask <laughs> I know that's so simplistic and so not even cryptic but just simplistic you know but vital Wearing two masks, wearing gloves, washing my blooming hands every two seconds, <laughs> taking showers every day, pretty much every day. <laughs> uh, you know, staying clean, staying as re- as healthy as possible. Yeah, of course you put on a few pounds during the pandemic, but heck, you gotta keep running. You gotta keep walking. You gotta keep getting out and getting fresh air and doing things. You gotta do it. Otherwise, come on now, you know the drill. But I just want to say something else. 
Sky News did something very interesting, but not interesting. I just noticed it. It was so subtle when I saw it this morning on Sophie Ridge, who does her show Sophie Ridge on Sunday, which is a good show generally. And Sophie Ridge has been brilliant forever on Sky. Really like her work and uh, just works, works her, absolutely works her socks off. Um, a true professional too. But I noticed something with the camera choices in that particular episode. There were three guests, at least that I remember watching. The, uh, well, Michael Gove, you know him. Oh, dear. Um, in Boris Johnson's cabinet. The Chancellor of the Duchy uh, in Lancaster. That, that's, uh, I think that's still his title. That's Michael Gove, who was behind Vote Leave. I don't want to go into all the history. I've gone into it uh, many a time before. Vote Leave, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, absolute scoundrel, in my view, complete scoundrel. Um, and, and has a wife who writes for the Daily Mail, I believe. Um, I think her name is Rose Vine, Rosemary Vine. I don't remember. But yeah, um, she absolutely carries water for her husband. And then you had on Diane Abbott. Diane Abbott, the uh, former shadow home secretary for the Labour Party, so Keir Starmer fired her, sacked her from that position, just like he sacked Angela Rayner. Really clever, really, really smart sackings from Sakia Starmer. You know, yeah, that's really the kind of thing you should be doing. Getting rid of Diane Abbott and getting rid of Angela Rayner. And by the way, don't forget, Labour, you never had a woman lead your party in all these years. In a hundred years of Labour, or however many years it is, you've never had a female leader of your party. You're the only political party in the UK the only major political party in the UK, who's never had a female leader. Ain't that crazy? Ain't that scandalous? Ain't that disgusting? Nicola Sturgeon, SNP leader. Joe Swinson was the leader of the Lib Dems. Conservatives, well, we know we've had two. Theresa May and Margaret Thatcher, both of whom became prime ministers. Labour? No female leader of the Labour Party. Not in the UK at all. Nowhere. No. Where? Where? I don't see her. Have you seen her? No, because there is not one. But you're getting rid of two women. That's really smart. That's really smart, Sakir. And you want, you're calling a, a change. You want Labour to change and you're changing by farming two women. That's terrific. And neither of them have done anything wrong. I know there are people who don't like Angela Rayner. I know there are people who don't like Diane Abbott. Diane Abbott knows there's people who don't like Diane Abbott because they tell her so on social media of all this racist and misogynist and misogynoir tweeting that they do at her. And she's the most hated black politician in the whole of the UK online. Kid you not, how many death threats does she get every hour? I mean, seriously, I'm not joking because this is not a joking matter. And so Diane Abbott was one of the guests on Sophie Ridge. And so was Ian Murray, the shadow Scottish secretary. Shadow Scotland secretary, Ian Murray, in the Scottish Labour Party. And... What I noted was the two white men... Michael Gove and Ian Murray were photographed in close up. Even when they were in their remote location, certainly Michael Gove, who was standing outside in Glasgow, 
was given a close-up shot to the point in which the camera had to actually equalize Sophie Ridge's shot because hers was smaller. So the camera zoomed in a bit to equalize her in terms of the two, the split screen shot. Same thing with Ian Murray, who came on after Diane Abbott did. But with Diane Abbott, when Diane Abbott came on between the two white men, do you know that her shot was a remote one. She was standing outside in Hackney this morning. But do you know she was at a distance? And she was so small in her shot as compared to Sophie Ridge, who was close up in hers. So there's this subliminal thing that happens. She looks much smaller than Sophie Ridge does. And then when you compare it to the segments of the separate interviews of Michael Gove and Ian Murray, their shots are equal to Sophie Ridge's shot. And so the camera person has got them close up like Sophie Ridge is. And so they're both in an equal two shot split screen. Whereas in the split screen for Diane Abbott, the black woman, and Sophie Ridge, the white woman, Sophie Ridge's shot is close up and she's close up, right? And Diane Abbott is in the distance, kind of in a kind of quarter shot or whatever. And so her shot is not equal to Sophie Ridge's. So the camera never zooms in close enough where we can have an equal look at both Sophie Ridge and Diane Abbott. I'll actually put some screenshots up in the newsletter. I know, I know, I'm behind on the newsletter. You have to see this if you didn't watch it. And you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. But I'm telling you, I don't think that was an accident. And just as, and I'm going to play this for you, just as, I'm going to play actually, it's 10, 10 minutes, but you're going to hear during Diane Abbott's interview, Diane Abbott's feed magically goes off when she's talking about Angela Rayner being sacked and how Angela Rayner should not have been sacked. And all of a sudden her feed gets cut. I wonder why. The black woman's feed gets cut. And no, this ain't a case of paranoia because black folk are not the most paranoid people out here. Guess who is? So, you know, this is the thing, right? You know, oh, I thought he had a gun. Oh, I thought his wallet was a gun. Oh, I thought this, I grabbed my taser. Oh no, but it's a gun. Who's the most paranoid people again? It ain't us. Oh, that black person's going to get me. They're going to get me. They're going to get me. Who's the most paranoid people again on the planet? It ain't us. So just when Diane Abbott's talking about Angela Rayner being fired. Oh, 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 her feed's gone. Oh, oh, you're back. (laughs) You'll hear it here in this 10 minute excerpt. And by the way, stay tuned for this because... Afterwards, she's going to, Sophie Rich is going to say, well, I want you to react now to this. We're going to get reaction to what Diane Abbott said. Wait a minute. Nobody got reaction to what Michael Gove had to say. That thieving conservative. But ooh, the black woman who's the Labour, the Labour politician, who Sakia Starmer got rid of from the shadow home secretary cabinet position. Ooh, we have to get reaction to what she has to say. Why? Why are you challenging her? You already challenged her during the only six minutes or so that she was on. She went on for very long. 
right? The other two guests had a bit more time. Gove definitely had more time than she. And I think Murray did as well. And you've challenged her. And now you want someone to react to her so that you can have them challenge her too. And you've already shown her in an unequal shot in the two screen. So she looks smaller and remote while Sophie Ridge is predominant. Whereas in the other two interviews on the show, Sophie Ridge and Michael Gove are equal in their shots. They occupy the same space in the frame. Same thing with Ridge and Murray in this interview after Diane Abbott's. I'm telling you, I think that's deliberate. I do think that's deliberate. It's subtle, but it's subliminal and it's clear. And I saw it immediately. Immediately. Yeah, I know some people think I'm paranoid. But no, uh-uh, uh-uh. This is blatantly clear to me. Blatant. It's right in front of you if you open your eyes. And you'll hear it here in this segment. Sophie Ridge will end the interview and then she'll say, well, right, we'll have some reaction to the labor left, to the <laughs> to the left, the left of labor. And we'll go now to uh, the shadow Scotland Secretary Ian Murray for his reaction. And then I, I love what Ian Murray says in the first few moments. I'm not here to react to Diane. Good. I'm glad he said that. And I, I it was good. And he backed her up, which I thought was good. Because I think Sophie Ridge wanted to have that. To make Diane Abbott seem like this irrelevant figure. And I know there's some people who can't stand Diane Abbott. And I wonder why they can't stand Diane Abbott. It couldn't be because they are racist. Could it possibly be? I want you to listen to this. This was from this morning on the Sky News program, Sophie Ridge on Sunday. So it's not a uniform picture, but certainly some results were disappointing and it was very distressing to lose Hartlepool. Um, it's interesting that you pick out the three areas, London, Wales, Manchester, where you think Labour did better. Uh, places where Labour has a different figurehead, shall we say, to the national uh, leadership uh, in Andy Burnham, Mark Drayford and Sadiq Khan. Uh, do you think that this perhaps suggests that it is a leadership problem? I think it's a strategy problem. When Keir Starmer was first selected as leader, he talked about unifying the party and he talked about not oversteering away from the policies under Jeremy Corbyn. He needs to go back to that way of thinking. I think sacking Angie Rayner, for instance, is not a unifying thing to do. I think we need to be building on the policies in the 2019 manifesto, many of which were forward-thinking and popular. We need to get the strategy right. You're talking about going back to the policies or building on the policies from the 2019 manifesto. Some people listening to that might think that is quite a staggering um, thing to say. You know, that was your worst result since 1935. You lost 59 seats. Isn't that a manifesto that failed? It was a manifesto that taking the policies individually was very popular. There's no doubt that the party leadership came under fantastic media attack, but the actual policies 
were popular. The policies might have been popular individually, but as a whole, they weren't popular, were they? They led to your worst defeat since 1935. They polled well. Of course we had a terrible defeat. You don't need to, you don't need to remind me that it was a terrible defeat. But, you know, extraordinary media attack on the party and on our leader at that time. So we now have a chance to regroup, to unify and put forward those popular policies. Um, just, I was speaking to Peter Mandelson over the last few days. He, of course, the former Hartlepool MP, you were talking earlier about the disappointing result in Hartlepool. He says Jeremy Corbyn is still casting a dark cloud. He's largely responsible for some of the losses that we've seen. Do, do you accept that you know, long, long Corbyn, if you like, is affecting Labour's chances still? Well, we won. Hartlepool twice under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and, importantly, with a bigger proportion of the vote. I mean, you can't say that Jeremy is responsible for the Hartlepool result. The disaffection in post-industrial Britain long predates Jeremy's leadership and we have to look at the roots of it. Let's talk a little bit about Keir Starmer and what he needs to do, in your view, uh, going forward. Uh, you talked a bit about policy. Um, do you think that um, there is a wider strategy issue that Keir Starmer needs to do, talking a bit more about his vision? John McDonnell, for example, saying that some of those candidates were sent out naked with no vision, no policies. Is that something that you would agree with? I think that Keir Starmer needs to go back to what he said when he was elected as leader and he wants to build, yes, on some of the policies which we were talking about in 2019. It is important that candid candidates can talk about the Labour Party's vision and talk about our policies. Is it right that Angela Rayner should lose her job as party chair? I said earlier, I think it's baffling why he sacked Angela Rayner. She didn't take any of the big decisions around Hartlepool. And we've not heard anywhere in the country people saying they didn't vote Labour because of Angela Rayner. What do you think it um, says about Keir Starmer's leadership if the first thing that he does is to reach out and sack Angela Rayner, who of course is a you know, working class woman, she, she's from the North, some people would say that she is the kind of person that you need to reconnect in some of the areas that you lost. I think it's puzzling to sack Angela Rayner and it really is unfair to have her take I think we have uh, lost the line there to uh, Diane Abbott. Oh no, you're back. Good news. Uh, excellent. Um, is the party too London-centric? I know you're a London MP yourself, of course, so it might be a bit of a, a difficult question to answer. Um, but there has been criticism uh, for the current Labour Party uh, for being too metropolitan, uh, too London-centric, not reaching out to the towns and the more traditional areas uh, of the United Kingdom that Labour's traditionally done well in. I, I, I don't accept that at all. I'm an East London MP. I'm speaking to you from East London and we have as much child poverty as anywhere else in the country. We have very large numbers of blue collar workers. I think it's an 
in many ways, an artificial distinction between so-called London elites and the rest of the country, what we need to do is bring together Hackney and Hartlepool in policies which speak to the issues that both types of Labour supporter have in common. Do you think this is existential? Labour. It is extraordinary when you look at some of the results, for example, you know, losing Hartlepool for the first time since it was created, losing the majority on Durham Council for the first time in 100 years. For many people, the 2019 election was seen as rock bottom, but if anything, Labour's gone backwards. Are you worried that Labour, with this realignment, may not be able to win power again? Not at all. I'm old enough to remember in the 80s, Eric Hobsbawm wrote a very widely circulated um, article on the forward march of Labour halted. And his thesis was that Labour was an existential crisis. It wasn't true then and it's not true now. We need to unify, we need to regroup and we need to move forward. Should a reshuffle be on the cards? Well, I mean, you probably know as much as I do, people are talking about a reshuffle. But I think generally it's a mistake to focus on personalities. We need to get the strategy and the policies right. I spoke, uh, just finally, I spoke to Andy Burnham yesterday, who, of course, as you said, you know, was re-elected as Mayor of Greater Manchester, increasing his uh, vote share. He said that if in the future, the distant future, the Labour Party should need him, he's there, they should give him a call. Is now the time to be dialing Andy Burnham's number? I, I, it's not for me to dial Andy Burnham's number, but it's interesting that he's saying that he would pick up the phone to the party leadership. OK. Uh, Diane Abbott, thank you very much for coming on the programme uh, this morning. Thank you. Well, that was uh, Diane Abbott, the, the view from the Labour left. We can get some reaction uh, to uh, some of what she said in that interview from the Shadow Cabinet. We're joined now by the Shadow Scotland Secretary, uh, Ian Murray, who joins us from Edinburgh. Um, just firstly, your reaction to the Diane Abbott interview. She says that actually the right thing to, to, for Keir Starmer to do now is to go back to the popular policies of the 2019 manifesto. What do you make of that? Uh, well, look, I really don't want to be responding to Diana, but I want to be responding to the country because Dan said a few things that actually were absolutely right. We need a policy platform that speaks to the entirety uh, of the country. We had a very mixed set of results uh, over the last few days. We've won our moralities back, as you said, in Merseyside, in Manchester, Bristol, the west of England, uh, and also in places like Cambridgeshire and Peterborough. We won from the Conservatives. We won a lot of seats from the councils in what you might call the blue wall, but we still got a problem in the Red Wall, and it's too soon uh, after the, three, the triple problems that we've had of the most dreadful 2019 general election result. We've had the COVID pandemic, and we've had a post-Brexit Britain. We've got to respond now to what communities are telling us. And from what I heard on the doors right across the country, voters are willing to listen to the Labour Party again, but they're just not making that step yet uh, to vote for us. And that's why Keir Starmer has to speed up the reforms in the party, speed up the policy-making uh, process. And to be slightly fair, and people have completely 
completely missed all of this. In the last 14 months, all of the oxygen in politics in this country has rightly been taken up by coping with this pandemic and seeing what happens after the pandemic. Now that we're coming out of that, it gives Keir a really good chance now to supercharge what he wants to do in terms of policy and what to do within the, with the party. And as Diane says, talk to everyone from Hackney to Hartlepool and all four corners of the country in terms of what Labour's perspective is for the future. Remarkable, ain't it? <laughs> Remarkable, ain't it? <laughs> I mean, you heard it just about 10 minutes there. Diane Abbott and later on after that, Ian Murray. Diane Abbott is the, or was, the Shadow Home Secretary for Labour. She was fired. She was sacked in a cabinet reshuffle by Sakir Starmer, the Labour leader. He's been Labour leader now in the UK for just over a year. And he now, Labour leader in England, certainly, because there is a Scotland Labour leader as well. So, But for the UK as a whole in general, outside of Scotland, Sakir Starmer is the leader of Labour. And he's been such for just over a year now. So he thought it would be a good idea to get rid of Diane Abbott. Oh, I'm going to sack Diane Abbott. How wonderful. How brilliant. Yeah, right. And then, as I said, uh, as I told you in the episode yesterday, sacked Angela Rayner as the chair of the Labour Party. Now, I made a mistake yesterday. I should add this. My correction here today. I said that he, at least in the liner notes of this episode, I think I wrote, I think I, I said that, Angela Rayner was sacked from the shadow cabinet. That is not necessarily true. Um, and in fact, that was not true. She was sacked as the Labour chair. And that is absolutely brainless of Sir Keir Starmer. You don't sack Angela Rayner. She did nothing. And she did nothing to get these results. It's you. You're the leader of the party. I mean, Sakia Starmer, you should be looking in the mirror and sacking yourself. Angela Rayner, as I said yesterday, has nothing to do with these poor results. This is just some cosmetic BS. And I'm saying, again, Sakia Starmer has really helped to sink his own reputation at the minute. I mean, you know, it's not tarnished uh, beyond repair. It's that he has not really done enough this first year or so. And it's going to take a lot longer than a year, especially with these kinds of results. And you heard Diane Abbott say it there. And she mentioned the media. As I've said before, the right wing press in England has done a con job on people in England. It really has. On the English public, it's conned them to no end, fear mongered them, you know, told them to hate, told them to be racist, told them to hate Diane Abbott and Labour, you know. I mean, it's it's just right there in front. And even in some ways, Sophie Ridge, who I think, again, is a I think is a decent person. Reinforces this with some of the questioning. Oh, let's get a reaction to Diane Abbott, but not let's get a reaction to Michael Gove, who is actually a cabinet member in government, in actual government, not in shadow government, in actual government. But no one's going to be... She didn't say, well, let's go to Labour to get a reaction to that. And sometimes she has in the past, but not this time. How you cannot have a reaction from Labour to Michael Gove 
of the conservatives talking his lies and garbage and talking, oh, well, we don't need to be worrying about Scottish independence when what we should be doing is focusing on the pandemic. That's rich coming from Michael Gove, whose conservative party were obsessed with Brexit. This is the guy that was the one of the architects of Brexit leave. I told you he was part of the vote leave campaign. Oh, my God. And it's really rich to have him on your show pontificating and telling Nicola Sturgeon, the Scotland First Minister and leader of the SNP Scottish National Party, to be focused on the pandemic and on all of these things and not on Scottish independence. Oh, they should focus on the pandemic. They are focused on the pandemic. Their rates are lower than ours in, in England. Oh, please. They're not focused on the pandemic. There have been some issues in Scotland. Drugs have been an issue in Scotland. Yes, of course, there have been issues. But Scotland's rates are generally better than England's. And it's really rich of the Chancellor of the Duchy, Mr. Michael Gove, a scabrous liar, if ever there was, to be talking about, well, Nicola Sturgeon should be focusing on the pandemic and not on Scottish independence. Are you kidding? And no one's... From a guy who was all about Brexit... Putting that before a pandemic? Oh, come on. Oh, come on. And the track record of this party, the Conservative Party, have had with the pandemic in England? 128,000 people dead? At whose hands? The Conservatives. Boris Johnson. Who didn't want to be strict with lockdowns at all. And said he would rather see bodies piled high than have a third national lockdown. I mean, oh, yeah. Oh, but we should be concerned about the pandemic instead of Scottish independence. Oh, please. And all you guys talked about was Brexit this, Brexit that. Brexit in a handbag, Brexit in a tree. Brexit for breakfast, breakfast for lunch, Brexit for lunch, Brexit for dinner and supper. And a Scooby snack. I mean, Brexit for Scooby snacks. That was your campaign. And now he's talking, oh, well, we should be worried about the pandemic. And your track and trace program was really wonderful, wasn't it? <laughs> but we don't need to get a reaction to Michael Gove. <laughs> Let's get a reaction to Michael Gove. It wasn't couched that way. It was, we're going now to Diane Abbott. So you don't even take us seriously. Let's get a reaction to the garbage that Michael Gove said and the lies and the obfuscations and evasions. And she pointed out that he wouldn't ask a question. So, okay, good, Sophie, good. But, come on. Don't present Diane Abbott like she's completely isolated from all this. And the shot of her that looks like she's standing a thousand yards down the street in Hackney, rather than the equal close-up that she should be getting to your close-up, it really demonstrates the, the bias. And, in fact, the racism. That your camera on Diane Abbott won't be close-up enough to her so that the two of you are equal in your shots together in the split screen. She's in the distance, a smaller figure than you, Sophie Ridge. But the two white men in their interviews with you are equal with you and have the same space in the shot. No, this is not nitpicking. This is something that comes across and it's subliminal and it's clear and it's blatantly clear. This is not paranoia. It's right in front of me to see and for you too to see. Did you see it? If you watched Sophie Ridge on Sunday, today, did you see it? Did you notice that? I noticed it right off, right away. And then her feed gets cut in the middle. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
But when Michael Gove spouts his lies, his feed never gets cut. You know, notice that? Never. <laughs> Come on now. I hope, again, that uh, every mother who is listening on this day, May the 9th, is having a great Mother's Day, whether you're celebrating it here in the U.S. or whether you've already celebrated it like people have in the U.K. with Mothering Sunday a few weeks back. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers of the planet Earth. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. <laughs>